Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today we are going to talk to a reporter that has some very, very insightful and amazing undercover experience on the base in Canada. So I'm very happy to have Ryan Thorpe on the show. First of all, thank you so much for coming on the show and being willing to discuss your amazing reporting. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the invite. I'm uh, looking forward to the conversation. Likewise. For our listeners, Ryan is a reporter at Winnipeg Free Press, and as I mentioned, he um, reports on many different things, so definitely check out his other work. But considering the topics that we like to cover on the Loopcast, we thought that this would be a really fascinating discussion. So why don't we just start off with talking about how you came across this amazing story and then got thrown into this undercover investigation? Yeah, so um, this would have, it it started with a simple news tip that we got at the Winnipeg Free Press, someone who knows um, uh, one of the people who works in our arts department uh, came across uh, a recruitment poster for what they figured was a white nationalist group. and so when they when they saw this, they they took a photo of it. They tore down the poster and they sent it to their friend who works at the Free Press um, because this individual worked in our arts department. It's not something that he covers, so he kind of kicked it over to our city desk. And um, they ended up assigning assigning uh, me to to look into it further. I think because I had had you know some limited experience uh, covering uh, far right extremism in the past. Um, so that's that, that's kind of the genesis of this, and then as I started looking into you know just what this group that was putting up this poster was about, and as you mentioned, it's the base. Um, it quickly became clear that this was an incredibly extreme group. You know, even among the extremist right, they're kind of on the the very uh, fringes of it. So uh, it, was, it was clear that it was a, a concern that this was here in Winnipeg, and we just tried to set out to find out as as much as we could. So the base is not just based in Canada, it's across North America. So why don't we discuss a little bit about who the base is, what are their motivations, their objectives, and potentially goals? Yeah, for sure. So the the base was founded in the United States in, uh, in 2018 uh, by an individual who uh, was originally going by the pseudonym Norman Spear, uh, but subsequently switched to Roman Wolf. And I believe he made that switch after uh, the group had got kind of the earliest media coverage um, on their activities, which was this really great expose from 2018. I think it was published in November 2018 by Vice News. Um, and in particular, I should throw a shout out to two uh, of their reporters, Mac Lamaru and Ben uh, McCutch, who uh, do some really great work on far-right extremism. Um, but so, yeah, it was established in uh, in the U.S. in 2018. The group's founders believed to have some property in the, the Pacific Northwest. And it's uh, it's very similar in its in its aims and its tactics to the Adam Waffen Division, which I'm, I'm sure is a group that some of your you know listeners will be familiar with. Um, uh, most experts on far-right extremism that I spoke to during uh, the course of my reporting said, you know, you can pretty much look at these as, as sister organizations that kind of while they're two separate entities, they're part of the same phenomena, but uh, actually not too long ago, the groups finally acknowledged that they were indeed, you know, formally cooperating. So um, it, it's kind of in this, like, anti-political uh, strain of the 
of the far right. Um, it's it's not interested in creating mass movements. It's primarily interested in creating you know these small um, cells in as many regions across North America and Europe as possible uh, in an effort to try and uh, prepare for the race war that that they see coming. In your article and also other articles that have presented your reporting and research, they show some of the posters that were found in Winnipeg. And um, it was interesting, like the slogan, save your race, join the base, and so forth. Why don't we talk about the imagery that are used in these posters a bit? Yeah, so there was a few different designs um, that were popping up in Winnipeg. Uh, that slogan was, was quite uh, common, save your race, join the base. Um, they had uh, some, like, runic uh, letters of the, the runic alphabet um, were included on some of them. Some had more, like, overtly fascistic imagery with, uh, you know, people decked out in military uh, gear and equipment holding weapons. Sometimes they would have slogans like train, fight, um, things like that, uh, but uh, it, it was quite clear, um, you know, what this group was about, and it was also very obvious that it was presenting this very militaristic uh, aesthetic in its propaganda posters. Do we have any idea of how many posters were out there, or at least a guesstimate? Was this just in a very small location, or were you able to track them throughout a larger extent? Yeah, there were. It, it started uh, in, as far as I'm aware, it started in the St. James area. And one, when uh, this, you know, person who sent us this news tip took this photo of, of of the poster, that would have been one of the first ones that had popped up. Um, and because it was in St. James, it's quite close to a military base here in Winnipeg. So it got me, um, you know, curious if, if somehow the the person behind this could could be tied to, to the base there. But very quickly, these posters were turning up all over the place, like, you know, borderline every area of the city, right outside of the, the provincial parlo- or, uh, provincial legislature here in Winnipeg. Um, so the, the person who uh, was behind this campaign was, was very active, seemingly going out every night and just getting as many posters out there uh, as possible. So we come to the point where you've got this tip, you're seeing these posters. How did you start diving deep into your cover, undercover reporting? Yeah, so when I, when I got this tip and, you know, I spoke to my editor and he said, tell me, you know, go, go find out what you can and, and report back. So I kind of just started doing some Internet searches. That's when I came across that, uh, that Vice News article and I, I did some more digging online. And I kind of formulated um, two potential approaches that we could take to the story. The first would be to track what neighborhoods these posters are popping up in, speak to perhaps some local kind of like anti-fascist activists. Winnipeg tends to have a pretty um, uh, very highly organized anti-fascist presence. Um, also speak to some academics and people who track far-right extremism. I could put that together, you know, within... 24 to 48 hours, it'd be a quick turnaround story, but I recognized it would be, you know, somewhat limited in terms of what we could actually find out about this group. Um, the other approach was that I could, you know, create a, a throwaway email account and uh, reach out to these people, 
posing as a white nationalist, interested in learning more about the group and potentially joining up. Um, and the posters that had been going around, they did have an encrypted uh, an email address that you could contact them at on a, an encrypted server. So I went to my editor. I pitched him these two approaches. I didn't give him any uh, indication which one I preferred, but I did want to, you know, reach out posing as a white nationalist and to, uh, you know, I was happy that he gave me the green light to kind of uh, take take that second approach. Uh, at that point in time, we had no idea what the, the story would turn into or just kind of how deep we would take this. Um, but that that's how I, uh, you know, got approval from my editors to create an email address and, and kind of reach out. So I, I, I kind of sketched out a rudimentary persona uh, for myself. I said that I was a you know, in my mid-20s, a university student in Winnipeg who had considered himself a white nationalist for three years. I gave myself the name Mark, and I, I reached out to this group um, asking for more information. And you mentioned the encrypted messaging um, application that there you had the contacts for. What type of communication strategies, once you got to communicating with members of the base, what kind of communication strategies were they using? Could you discuss that a bit? Yeah, sure. So, um, like, the, the initial emails that I was doing back and forth with this group, um, they just had a, a Proton account, which is, like, uh, my understanding, it's a, it's a type of email that you can get that that's, uh, has better security, that it, it, to some degree it's encrypted. Um, eventually, uh, you know, after going back and forth uh, on emails for several days, so they were essentially quizzing me, trying to get more information, um, uh, putting me through a bit of the early stages of this vetting process that I was going to go through. Um, eventually, they invited me to download the encrypted messaging app Wire. Um, and this was the platform that, at least when I infiltrated them, that they were using. Um, they had on this platform, they had a number of different group chats. Uh, there was one that I was added to just solely for Canadian members. There was one for, like, the entire organization. Um, but then they also had other ones that I didn't have access to that were essentially uh, regional group chats. So they, they tried to decentralize conversations um, into these various forums so that, not everything would be discussed in this um, uh, this main chat room that everyone had access to because I think they recognized the potential for you know infiltration or for leaks or things of that that nature. And when we're discussing membership, do we have an idea of how many people are members of the base, say in Canada, and then the larger scope of let's just say North America? We don't have entirely accurate figures. We're not talking about a lot of people here. Um, when I was in there in that centralized chat room, there was about 45 participants. Um, now, I think the thing to point out would be that there are these kind of regional chat rooms um, that were also operating that I wasn't able to get access to. So it's entirely possible that there was members that just chose to participate in regional chat rooms as opposed to the centralized one. Um, and uh, so it, it's really hard to say, but we're not talking about a huge organization. Uh, the base is quite explicit about the fact that, you know, they're looking for quality over quantity. They're not trying to build a mass movement here. They're trying to get only the most, like, hardcore 
dedicated fringes of the extremist right, um, and that they really, at this point in their existence, want to create, you know, two to three man cells in as many regions as possible. Um, out of those, you know, 45 to 50, let's say, probably a, a low count, but somewhere in that uh, in that vicinity, most of those would be folks from the U.S. Um, Canada, they're currently trying to expand their reach here right now. They've had some limited success. Uh, there was obviously, you know, this activity going on in Winnipeg. I saw evidence of a, a recruitment drive in Saskatchewan, which is uh, actually where, where I was originally uh, from, uh, my home province. Um, and then I was also told that there was a cell operating on the East Coast, although we're not really sure what the you know, size of that cell would be or what exactly is the scope of their activities. Um, the other thing worth pointing out is because, you know, this group isn't acting alone. In addition to the base, you have the Atomoffin Division, um, you have uh, FKD. Um, so you have other groups that are in the same vein that would have, you know, likely similar membership numbers. It's possible the Atomoffin Division might have a few more. Um, so, you know, we're not talking about a ton of people. But I also don't think uh, low membership figures uh, should lead us to dismiss or discount them. Actually, the idea that they want to form these small and, as you called it, hardcore cells really says a lot about the larger strategy of being decentralized and therefore creating a system that's a lot harder to potentially um, break if law enforcement finds out about it. When you talk about hardcore cells with only the best candidates, in your mind, what would they consider a best candidate? What type of ideology and drive are we looking at? So uh, when I was going through this vetting process, they were quite explicit about asking, you know, do you have a background with the military? Do you have a background in, you know, like chemistry or engineering? So they're obviously looking for people with certain skill sets because they want folks with, you know, firearms training or explosives training or, you know, those certain sort of specialized, that, that specialized knowledge because those folks can um, then uh, get be brought into the network and then serve as trainers um, and disseminate that skill set out. So they're certainly looking for military experience. They're certainly looking, um, you know, for background in chemistry and engineering. In addition to that, from a more kind of political ideology um, when I told them that I was a white nationalist uh, and I considered myself that for, for a few years, that was kind of something I had to sell them on. They almost like that was, uh, they, they weren't super impressed by just hearing that, you know, I was a, you know, quote unquote, run of the mill white nationalist or, or supposedly so. Like they were looking for what they would call, you know, national socialist, what I would call a neo-Nazi. Um, you know, so this is, this is a group primarily of uh, neo-Nazis or also this bizarre ideology called like esoteric Hitlerism. Uh, those are kind of the main uh, two viewpoints common in the group. Um, so I would say if there's someone who's on board politically that isn't just kind of a, you know, a proponent of white identity politics, but is a, is a full-blown um, you know, neo-Nazi, and then in addition to that has, you know, uh, this specialized knowledge, be it firearms or military training or, you know, the, the background in science and engineering, that would be to them, you know, the ideal candidate. So you talk about the vetting process that you went through. How long did that take? 
what sort of things other than the questions, other questions that you might not have addressed, did they ask you? What was that like? Yeah, it, it happened fairly quickly, um, but I think part of that was because, you know, I was making myself available. I was communicating with them lots, um, so I, I think I went through the process quite quickly. Um, in addition to inquiring, you know, about my political worldview, if I did have, you know, a background in or this kind of specialized knowledge, um, they asked me if I had read the book Siege by James Mason, which is really a handbook for these people. From what I can tell, based off my research, it's kind of like the modern version of the Turner Diaries in some sense. Um, it's kind of a Bible for, for this group, for, for the out of division. So that was quite important to them. They very explicitly said, you know, the reason we're asking this question is because this book, you know, while we may disagree, quibble with certain aspects of it, this book really is kind of very important for us. It, it, it's a bit of a handbook for us. Um, so they were interested in that. After going back and forth on emails, uh, as I mentioned before, I was, I was invited to download this encrypted messaging app. And one feature is you can actually do a voice call. So essentially just a phone call, but it's through this encrypted app. Uh, and they had set up a time uh, with me where they were going to do a phone conversation. Um, so this was lasted about an hour. Originally, uh, my impression was that this phone call was going to be with between myself and the group's founder, but a couple of minutes before it was set to begin one night, um, they, he sent me a message and revealed that there was actually going to be like six to eight other members just kind of listening in on the line, um, and they were... I guess, asking me to expand on over the phone things I had said uh, by email um, just so they could decide, you know, whether or not I was serious enough for them. Um, So to prepare for this, I had kind of written out, uh, I had like multiple pages, uh, a piece of paper sitting on my desk with kind of these pre-written talking points in case I, you know, couldn't, uh, couldn't remember something off the top of my head and needed to refer down to it. Um, after that uh, phone call ended, they had said, uh, you know, you hang up, get off the line, we're going to stay on, we're going to discuss your answers, talk about how you did, and then we'll be in touch within 24 hours. Um, so the next day while I was at work, I was just at the, in the newsroom at the Free Press, I got a message from the group's founder It said, you know, you did well last night, the final uh, step is for you to meet our Winnipeg recruiter in person. And if all goes well, you'll be invited to join. Um, so I'd set up a time uh, to meet their, their local recruiter. Um, I did that, and then I was invited to, to join the group and essentially became a, a full member. I'd love to talk about this meeting with their local recruiter. First of all, what was going through your mind before meeting this individual? Because you know, you're putting on this completely different persona to hopefully gain even more access to the group. And then what was the actual meeting like? What types of discussions happened and so forth? Yeah. So, um, I mean, that day at work, it it was kind of a blessing in disguise that I I just happened to be very busy. I had some daily uh, reporting that I needed to do, uh, which kind of kept me so busy. I didn't have a chance to think about it too much, um, which which is probably a good thing in retrospect. So I was just very busy throughout the day. But then eventually I left the newsroom. I, I went to my, my place and I kind of just made a, a quick bite to eat. 
and started to try and get myself in the, the headspace that I was going to need to be in. And, and at that point, it really sank in, you know, what I was doing, that, you know, this guy was obviously, you know, pretty pretty out there and involved in this very, you know, secretive and violent group. Um, and, you know, so I got, I got a bit nervous, you know, it really sank in um, the risks involved with what I was doing. Um, we, we had set uh, the meeting at a, a park here in Winnipeg um, that has a lot of trails so that we could kind of, you know, wander off into a secluded area where no one would over, you know, overhear our conversations. Um, essentially, I'd provided a brief description of myself so that this guy could uh, pick me out of the crowd. So we went there. The meeting was set for 8 p.m. Um, I got there a little bit early and then you know, maybe about five minutes before we were set to meet, he sent me a message just saying that he was running a few minutes behind. So I was kind of just sitting there and waiting. And, you know, there's other people in the park. So everyone who's walking by, uh, for the most part, it's like, I'm thinking, like, is this, is this the guy? Everyone seems like a potential Nazi. Um, but eventually, you know, this guy walks up, introduces himself, makes it very clear that he is the, you know, Winnipeg recruiter for the base. Um, and, you know, I was, I was quite nervous at the start, but I felt maybe about five minutes into our conversation, I, I felt like I had established a pretty good rapport with him. I didn't get any sense that this guy was suspicious of me. Uh, it seemed to me that he clearly thought the vetting process I had gone through up to that point had been successful. So I started to feel better about uh, what I was doing. Um, the meeting it, it itself, it lasted about an hour and a half or so. It was, it was quite bizarre. Um, you know, this, this guy, we were kind of just walking through the park and, uh, at one point he pointed out this rail line that runs parallel to the park. And he started talking about, you know, that, that offers opp- opportunities. Um, he, he said something along the lines of, um, you know, even if you didn't want to make that go boom, you could do X, Y, and Z and started breaking down how he would go about sabotaging this rail line. So, I mean, almost right away, you know, 20, 30 minutes into our chat, he's already talking about potential plans for, for violent activities. So that was always obviously highly concerning. He also started dropping references to him being uh, in the military or to having military training. Uh, I'd had my suspicions leading up to that point, but I hadn't had it confirmed. Um, and essentially, I was trying to elicit as many biographical details about this guy uh, without uh, outright interviewing him, so I didn't blow my cover. So I was trying to strike a delicate balance because I didn't want to press for too much information. Um, but eventually, I just I asked him outright, so you're in the military, and he told me that he was uh, he was indeed in the military, that he was trained as a combat engineer. And as I was to learn later, uh, what's what's particularly troubling about that is explosives work is the bread and butter of the combat engineering field. Um, and, uh, and one other thing that's probably you know, worth noting is that uh, towards the end, he started uh, talking about you know committing violence against local activists, local kind of like anti-fascist activists. He, he made a comment like, you know, in a well-ordered society, these people would be dragged out of their homes and strung up. Um, he talked about his desire for a race war. Um, he talked about, you know, wanting to see white people pick up guns. So it was just, it was a very, very bizarre encounter and left me, uh, you know, quite concerned about who this individual was. 
um, how I was going to go about uh, identifying him and exposing him because it was obvious that you know he needed to uh, to be exposed. It's interesting that even though you didn't know exactly who he was, he was willing to share enough information about himself to lead you down that trail, which makes me wonder about the group's operational security. Maybe it's just this particular recruiter, but in your experience, the security measures that they use throughout the vetting process, did you find them adequate if, if you were uh, a group with extremist intent or were you surprised at how loose they might have been? Well, I mean, clearly they weren't adequate. I'm, I'm not some, you know, law enforcement operate, operative. I'm a newspaper reporter um, and I was able to infiltrate them and ultimately expose one of their members. So, so clearly their vetting process, you know, if, if this group is, sees itself as something of a vanguardist movement that's going to you know, spark a violent race war and, you know, save the white race from a genocide. So if that's their ultimate aim, clearly they need some better operational security than that. Um, I think part of it, though, is that the individual that I was meeting um, perhaps wasn't their, you know, strongest member in this regard. After I did expose him, um, you know, some folks that know him from the military said that, you know, he wasn't it. He didn't have a reputation as being the best soldier, um, you know, and uh, pretty early on into our in-person meeting, um, this guy said to me, you know, I, 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 we're going by online pseudonyms up until that point, and he had said, well, look, we're going to be, you know, working very closely with one another, so if you like, we can drop the pseudonyms. And I said, sure. So I said, all right, well, my real name's Ryan, and he said, my real name's Patrick. So... I mean, if this guy was willing to give me, you know, his real first name on our first meeting when he, you know, truly didn't know who I was, I mean, clearly we're not talking about a criminal mastermind here. Um, but, I mean, I also, I don't want to be dismissive. He, he, he struck me as a relatively intelligent individual, just perhaps not uh, as safe and uh, careful as he should have been, or as he obviously should have been. Did it ever cross your mind throughout this whole experience, at least at the starting, that potentially this was actually law enforcement trying to pull people in to see if someone was willing to join a group? Yeah, there was uh, one of my colleagues joked about that at one point, that perhaps I would succeed in exposing like a an RCMP undercover agent or something like that. But um I would have been very surprised if that was indeed the case. If there was a group active in Winnipeg or Manitoba, I could see law enforcement essentially undertaking the exact same project that I undertook, which would be to infiltrate this group to find out what they can about it. I'd be very surprised if the Canadian government was taking it upon themselves to start up violent extremist groups where there otherwise are not any. Um, but, I mean, that it's certainly, I suppose it was a possibility, um, but uh, I, even when we kind of briefly discussed that uh, in the newsroom, I, I, I didn't put much stock in that theory. Some of the ideals and topics that the, we'll call them the recruiter, talked to you about in this park meeting really fall under this idea of accelerationism. 
I was wondering if you could discuss that a bit and how it fits broadly into the base's ideals and goals. Certainly, yeah. My, my understanding, I mean, that's, that's entirely right. This group is big on the theory of accelerationism. Um, from, from what I've read, my understanding is it's actually a, a concept that was kind of associated with the radical left that seems to have been uh, appropriated, I guess, by, by the extremist right. Um, but, yeah, it's essentially the notion that, uh, you know, these uh, violent, you know, white supremacists and neo-Nazis should do what they can to uh, kind of exacerbate uh, the contradictions of the system uh, in order to uh, cement its demise. Um, you know, it, it, when, I was, when I was talking with Patrick in the park, towards the end of our meeting, you know, I was asking him uh, about his views on, uh, you know, Canadian politics, and um, we have an election coming up here, a federal election, and, uh, you know, he had said, I, I, I want the Liberals to get five terms in office. Um, I want them to push multiculturalism down people's throats. I want Black Lives Matter in every white neighborhood. I want things, you know, to get so bad that white people are going to start picking up guns. Um, so that kind of fits in with what uh, their kind of, I don't know, MO is, I guess, which is really they want to try and make things unlivable. They want to uh, drive social conditions uh, in, in, in a negative way um, so that uh, more and more people get so disaffected and angry that they start thinking, you know, extremist activity is the path forward. So you've had this park meeting with Patrick. What happened after that? And also, just for our listeners, if they haven't read about your your research and your reporting experience. How long did this whole process take? This investigation was only about a month long. Um, so after that park meeting, uh, I, I went back home. I was pretty, pretty happy and uh, excited after that because, you know, I'd been quite nervous going into it, but it was this moment where, like, you know, I, I pulled this off. Um, the next day, uh, I got uh, a message from the group's founder who had said, you know, meeting went well last night, so if you still want to join, you're in. I said yes, and then within um, within an hour or two, I was added to their kind of centralized chat room, and I just immediately started uh, documenting the conversations that were happening there, or taking place there. Um, the thing about WIRE is one of the features is that the uh, messages that people send will self-destruct. So they all have a timer on them. So I had to keep a close eye on the conversations that were taking place. And essentially I was just screenshotting them uh, on my phone over and over again. Um, and for the next two weeks, I, I documented those conversations. Patrick, this, this, this local recruiter, uh, made it very clear to me at that meeting that he soon wanted to commence paramilitary training. Uh, in Manitoba. Um, he had revealed to me that he had previously been going to the U.S. to engage in paramilitary training with his, you know, Nazi comrades there, um, but had at one point been turned away at the border. Um, and so now that the group, the group found that to be too risky of a strategy, and so they were going to start, you know, this, this paramilitary training here in Canada. Um, obviously, I had no intention of running off with this guy into the bush with firearms. Um, you know, I, I wasn't 
going to do that. So I essentially just came up with excuses um, uh, as to why we couldn't meet right away. Um, this put a definite time limit on how long I was going to be able to stay in this group for, um, because at some point, you know, you keep coming up with excuses, it's just a red flag, and they're going to start wondering what I'm really up to. Um, so I recognized I only had a bit of time, but I essentially came up with excuses for about two weeks. I got as much information as I could. Um, you know, I documented the incredibly disturbing conversations that was taking place in this organization. Um, and then we published our, our first article on this topic, was, which was a pretty long uh, feature article uh, called Homegrown Hate. It's probably about 3,500 words or so. Um, and uh, yeah, it kind of exploded from there. After you published the first publication, Homegrown Hate, there are a number of other publications that you have on Patrick. Can we talk about how Patrick's true identity revealed itself and how that went forward? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in that first article, I really wanted to confirm this guy's ID before we went to print, uh, but ultimately I just, I, I didn't, I wasn't able to get there. Um, but what I did was I threw out as many breadcrumbs uh, as I could. I included all of the details that I had gotten from him. I knew people were going to read this story, and I figured after we published, um, as is often the case, people are going to start proactively reaching out to us with information. Um, so that's exactly what happened. Uh, when that article published, I mean, at that point, I was pretty much working around the clock, uh, you know, seven days a week kind of thing. Um, so even though it dropped on a Friday, I continued my reporting throughout the weekend. Um, and I had a number of people uh, reach out to me with tips. Uh, one of them was uh, someone who identified themselves as a member of the Canadian military who uh, I started communicating with, and they sent me a photo of someone that they uh, knew from the military and said, is this the guy? And, uh, and right away I knew that this was indeed the guy I had met in the park. So this person was able to uh, pretty much tell me everything I needed, um, you know, his, his, his full name, his rank, his, uh, his role within the armed forces. And then it was just a matter of taking that and then getting the Canadian military to confirm um, essentially, from the source in the military, what I learned was that the guy's full name was Patrick Matthews, um, that he was a master corporal in the, the Canadian Army Reserves, and that he was indeed trained as a combat engineer. Um, I got this source to provide me more information about, you know, what is the extent to his experience with explosives. Um, he revealed that he holds something of a leadership position within the military, um, it, not to make it seem like he's some high-ranking general, but that he is someone in a kind of a mid-range leadership position in the sense that, you know, he has people working under him, taking orders from him. Um, we ended up publishing that article identifying Patrick the following Monday. We pushed forward without formal confirmation from the Canadian Armed Forces um, that they did indeed have a Master Corporal Patrick Matthews stationed in Winnipeg, but that, that came the following day and, and the information was accurate. What happened to Patrick in the end since all of this information comes out, information that he's involved in a highly extremist 
neo-Nazi leaning group. So what, what happened? So hours after we publicly identified them in pages uh, in the pages of the Winnipeg Free Press, uh, Manitoba RCMP raided his home in Beaujolais, which is a, a community kind of on the outskirts of Winnipeg. Um, but they raised, raided his home and seized a number of his firearms. Um, uh, those firearms, my understanding, are still in the possession of the Mounties. Um, Patrick was quickly kind of thrust under the microscope. Um, there was, you know, a number of investigations um, going on into his his activity, and then we were to subsequently learn that he had actually come on the radar of uh, national security uh, agency uh, months earlier um, after he got uh, uh, stopped at the the U.S. border with uh, essentially like racist materials of some sort. Uh, but the, the next thing that happened was uh, Patrick Matthews disappeared, um, and no one was quite sure where he was. Um, and so obviously I had a lot of people reaching out to me to see if I was okay because they were worried for my well-being. Um, but uh, to be perfectly honest, my, my initial thoughts were, you know, I was worried, worried for, for his personal safety. Um, and then eventually his truck turned up uh, at the U.S.-Canada border, abandoned there. And no one's really sure where he's at. Um, obviously, there's evidence to suggest that he drove his truck to the border, uh, left it there, and then walked across, illegally entering into the U.S. Um, but we haven't been able to confirm that because no one's really sure where Patrick Matthews is. That's really fascinating. And also, going back to your personal safety, you've got these stories that have come out after you've infiltrated the base. Did you have any blowback at all or was it pretty much all said and done once you just killed the social media and encrypted encrypted platform apps like what happened were you worried at all what kind of safety precautions did you take just in case yeah i mean so i think i would have been a fool to not be worried Uh, i was trying um you know, to, to not be cavalier about it. There was obvious risks involved with, with what uh, what we had done. Uh, you know, at the paper, we, we instituted a number of safety uh, kind of uh, protocols. In the lead-up to publishing, we instituted more in the, uh, in the aftermath of publishing, you know, just things that I was doing to try and, and keep myself safe. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, I, there was a bit of blowback. Um, at first, it was radio silent, which was almost a bit disconcerting um, because, you know, I expected there to be blowback. But eventually, the pushback did start to trickle in, and there was, you know, some threats uh, against me that surfaced. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure what else to say about that. But, I mean, ultimately, even at the height of this thing, while I was trying to be careful, um, you know, I wasn't walking around terrified all the time or or anything like that. Looking at the bigger picture, you've had this amazing undercover investigation. You've uncovered Patrick, who we have no idea where he is at this point. But what does the overall progression of the base potentially in Canada look like at this point? Have you followed up on activities in the region or 
is it pretty much shut down because of this investigative report? Well, I mean, there, there certainly hasn't been any other activity that I'm aware of in, in Manitoba. I'm not sure uh, to what extent the group is still active in, in, in Saskatchewan and on the East Coast, because uh, at the very least, those are the areas the base, uh, I had seen evidence, was active. Um, when I was going through that vetting process, when I did the kind of the, the voice call with the group's founder, he had asked me if I had seen the uh, report that Vice News had done in November 2018. I told him that I did, and he kind of, you know, bemoaned it as a, as a hit piece and said how it was, you know, unfair or whatever. Um, but he had said that, that that article had taken the wind out of their sails um, and that, you know, that it, it had uh, impacted their expansion as an organization, but that they were, you know, subsequently, you know, had recovered and now we're, things are picking up steam again. So I suppose it's possible that after this, you know, expose that we did here that uh, it has once again taken the wind out of the organization's sales. Um, but it, it, it's hard to say because the group is so secretive and because getting access to, uh, you know, the inner workings of them is, is quite difficult. Um, uh, so... In terms of what's the future for them in Winnipeg, or sorry, in Canada, I mean, I, I wouldn't discount them. I wouldn't count them out by any means. I think uh, between the base and um, and the Adamoffin division, we know that these folks are active in multiple Canadian provinces, um, and I think I, th I think it's likely, you know, given the fact that these folks are incredibly dedicated to this this cause of theirs that they're, they're going to keep plugging away. Um, there's certainly been evidence to suggest that uh, not not even necessarily in Canada, but that after our reporting, the group has continued to pick up new recruits. Um, there was evidence to suggest that they, you know, had members in, in South Africa, in Australia. There's European members. There's obviously um, a bunch of activity associated with this organization in the U.S. Um, and, and I think it's, sad to say, but I think it, it, it's likely that they'll continue to recruit here in Canada and try and get these paramilitary training events off the ground here. From your personal experience going through this undercover investigative report, what sort of takeaways are the main things that stand out in your mind from this experience that can help towards greater understanding on issues surrounding extremism, recruitment, use of communications, etc.? Well, I think one thing that was quite eye-opening for me, although it, it, it probably won't be, uh, perhaps won't be as, as eye-opening for, for some of your listeners, was the extent to which uh, these groups are active in the military. Um, so speaking in the Canadian context, there was a uh, report uh, done by the, the Canadian Armed Forces that came out in 2018 that looked at the past five years and identified that there had been 54 uh, individuals found within the Canadian military who were either, you know, bona fide members of hate groups or um, held views consistent with, you know, right-wing extremism to some extent. Um you know, that, that's not a surprise once you learn that these groups are either actively recruiting folks with military backgrounds or pushing their 
existing members to join the military to get that training. Um, now, this is obviously a huge concern because, as we've consistently seen, it only takes um, one individual motivated by a hateful ideology to cause a significant amount of bloodshed. Uh, we've seen that here in Canada. Uh, it's certainly been seen in the U.S. as well. Um, so, so I think that that's something that's, uh, that's quite concerning. And then I, I would say one other thing is I think for, for folks that aren't perhaps um, super knowledgeable on this topic, I think that there's a tendency to view kind of like the, the alt-right or the you know, far-right extremists as kind of a, a monolithic entity. Um, but from what I can tell, that's, that's not the case. I, I started thinking about it. This was kind of useful for me during my reporting. I started thinking about it in two different strands, kind of the, the political wing of the, you know, far-right movement, which could perhaps be associated with, you know, what we commonly refer to as alt-right. And then there's an anti-political wing. And uh, it, it's this anti-political wing that I find most concerning because when you reject politics, when you reject formal politics, um, you know, the name of the game is violence. And these people, uh, these are people who are convinced that there is no political solution to what they view as the current social crisis. And so the the next logical step for them, what they view as the next logical step is to, to pick up guns. Um, so even though these folks are small in numbers, I think we need to keep an eye on them. I, I truly believe that sunlight is the best disinfectant, that we need to shine spotlights on these people, um, because my concern would be that if we ignore them, if we let them operate in the shadows, it's, it's going to fester and it's going to grow. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on the Loopcast, Ryan, and also being brave enough to do this undercover report, it's it's really fascinating to see it from the inside and then all that sort of unraveled after your reporting was released and, and written about. So thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, once again, uh, thank you for the insight.